Hey, it's Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed here. I have a podcast recommendation for you. From KCRW, Bodies is a medical mystery podcast with a feminist twist. It's a show that tackles why women and other people with marginalized genders are so often left in the dark when it comes to understanding their own bodies. In each episode of Bodies, we meet someone with a question about their health, and we follow them on their quest for answers. In this new season, we hear from people who are discovering their neurodivergence, facing down a postpartum mental health disorder, and preparing for their own death. Bodies episodes are intimate and thoughtfully produced. The show has been called life-changing by many listeners for the first three seasons. If you have a body and you're trying to figure out how to keep it alive and well in this patriarchal world, you'll want to listen to Bodies from KCRW. New episodes are out now, wherever you listen to podcasts. The Supreme Court overturns lower court rulings, preserving broad access to the abortion medication Mifepristone. The FDA issues new recommendations for bivalent COVID-19 boosters for seniors and people with compromised immune systems. U.S. birth rates persist near an all-time low since the pandemic. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. It's World Immunization Week. I wish I could tell you that wasn't a crunchy holiday, pointy-headed public health nerds created to raise important attention on a critical issue that just, well, isn't sexy enough on its own terms to get the attention it deserves. It is. That's exactly what it is. But this one, like most of them, matters, and it has never mattered more. If you've been with me since the bad old days of the worst of the pandemic, you've already heard me talk a lot about vaccines, and you've also heard me talk about myths and disinformation and about how COVID's emergence during the internet era joined these two at the hip. Don't get me wrong. Vaccine mis- and disinformation have been around way before COVID. There's a reason our first episode ever was about exactly this, and that was back in 2019. Even before COVID, there were a number of high-profile measles outbreaks as social media drove parents to question vaccines that are so damn effective against the diseases they prevent, most parents forgot what the diseases even looked like. COVID was like a pressure cooker for anti-vaxxers. We had a new unfamiliar virus hit us, presumably from a nation with which ours has a strained relationship, all in a time when we had a carnival-barking reality TV star in the Oval Office. The pandemic forced us into our homes, where we had way too much time to spill our anxieties all over the internet. The cauldron boiled over. Across the U.S., vaccination rates are still down. They've been declining by about a percentage point among new kindergartners every year since 2020. And while that's a serious problem unto itself... We are truly blessed and privileged to live in a society where vaccination rates have been so high for so long. But in too many parts of the world, that's not the case. An infection we fail to prevent with a vaccine in Malawi or Pakistan is way more likely to end in a death that we failed to prevent. And that's why the fact that children in low and middle income countries fell behind on their vaccines during the pandemic is one of its most bitter consequences. It's hundreds of thousands of kids who didn't just have to live through the COVID pandemic, but are now left exposed to so many of the other diseases like diphtheria, typhoid fever, measles, and hepatitis that have been taking young lives for centuries. To add insult to injury, a new report from UNICEF found that global trust in vaccines is down 44% since COVID, worse among women and people under 35, you know, the folks most likely to be moms. So even as our COVID vaccines were way too slow to hit some of the poorest countries in the world, our disinformation made its way just fine. And it could hobble efforts to catch children up on these life-saving vaccines. And about those slow COVID vaccines, that goes back to a debate about whether or not U.S. corporations making money on these vaccines hand over fist should be forced to hand over the recipe, which, by the way, our tax dollars paid for. It would violate patent rights, they say. And without those patent rights, what would drive all that innovation, they asked. What innovation? 
It's that same system of corporatism that's kept those same corporations from innovating new vaccines for diseases like HIV or malaria, for which we're only now seeing breakthroughs. After all, poor folks don't have the same kind of cash to pay. So those vaccines, well, they wouldn't pay out enough for them to research and develop them to save millions of lives. That's another story for another week. This week, it's World Immunization Week, where the theme is the great catch-up. That's as in catching up with vaccines after the pandemic, not overly inflated versions of red tomato condiment. I wanted to learn more about the effort being put into catching children up on their vaccines around the world. So I sat down with Martha Reber, Executive Director of Shot at Life, a critical organization on the front lines of global vaccines for children. Here's my conversation with Martha Rabor. All right. Can you introduce yourself to the tape? Yes. Hi, Martha Rabor. I'm the Executive Director of the Shot at Life campaign, which sits within the United Nations Foundation. Let's just start with where we've come to. Give us a picture in a world before vaccines. What are the leading causes of death, particularly in, in lower and middle income countries in the world? So before the, you know, widespread uh, dissemination of vaccines, children were dying, still are, but were dying in very large numbers of measles, of pneumonia, of rotavirus, which is a diarrheal disease. Um, Before vaccines, you know, smallpox was a scourge. Smallpox had been around for thousands of years. The global health community got together and said, in the scientific committee said, let's get, let's eradicate this disease and they were able to do it. So before vaccines, uh, infectious disease used to spread wild and, uh, you know, children used to die in very large numbers. You talked about children in particular. Um, you know, one of my pet peeves and, and um, a lesson we regularly come back to is about how you calculate life expectancy, right? Oftentimes when you say life expectancy was 38, people sort of assume that Everybody just dropped dead at 38. But really what life expectancy is, is an average uh, age at death. And when a child dies, it disproportionately brings down the life expectancy. So if you made it through your childhood, you were looking at, you know, 60 years of healthy life, not too dissimilar from where we are now. Obviously, people did die a lot younger, you know, by, by a decade or so. But, but you know, the real issues were death in childhood and then again, death in um, in pregnancy and childbirth and, and then often death in war. But that death in childhood piece is you know, so fundamentally critical. Um, can you tell us a little bit just uh, about what is the state of child and infant mortality today um, in lower and middle income countries uh, in places without the kind of access to medication, medicine, even vaccines and clean water that we take for granted here in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, you make a really good point. Children are still dying of infectious disease in many low-resource countries. But, you know, I tend to, and our campaign tends to also like to look at the the optimistic side of things. And vaccines are really, they are, you know, what Bill Gates calls the, the best buy in public health. They have made the biggest difference in saving children's lives around the world. And the thing is, I think we're at a really exciting time. Like we have the vaccines. It's a question of access. We know um, I've had the privilege of visiting a lot of uh, countries in Africa and um, really have met with healthcare workers and talked to mothers and people want these vaccines. You know, it's a question of access, but we don't have a lot of the same issues we have here about 
being afraid of vaccines or spacing out vaccines or, you know, people see measles come through their village and wipe out children. And they know what it means for to get, especially measles, if you don't have regular access, like you made a great point, to, to clean water. Clean water is another big thing. And it's important when you're ill, right? We know that um, you need to regularly be hydrating, help your body deal with a fever and, and work out a virus. So I think what's really important to, to underline is that the solution is there Vaccines do save lives, but what's important and what where I'm from at Shot at Life, we work on increasing access to those vaccines. And that's a, a really important point, I think. Um, as I said, compared in this country, I think people could be can be a little more skeptical about vaccines and they're sort of a a victim of their own success, right? We don't see polio we you know anymore. Maybe we have grandparents or no older people who uh, contracted polio. But thanks to vaccines, we don't see polio in this country anymore. But if you travel to other countries where there are children who, you know, cannot walk and they have the paralysis due to polio, well, those parents are more than ready to line up and get those vaccines because they know they'll protect their children. Yeah, you make a really good point. And I raised the point about, about childhood mortality to remind folks that, you know, th there is a real difference when we talk about vaccines here in what we call the global north or high-income societies versus when we're talking about the global south or lower and middle-income societies, which is that, you know, on, on the one hand, um, you have a true and deep, profound need. And on the other, you have a situation where people can't necessarily get to them. And in the United States, our healthcare system is really quite broken. And at the same time, though, no matter where you live, you can get access to a vaccine, no matter where you live. Uh, a, yeah. a public health department offers those in, in your town, your community, free of charge for kids. Um, and so the way we think about health and healthcare and the consequences of the lack thereof fall hardest on literally dead children. And I, I, I say that in that way so that folks understand exactly what it is we're talking about, right? And the upside, of course, is that um, you can solve that. You guys are working uh, every day to solve that by way of getting that vaccine access uh, to folks who need it. The other point that you raised, which I really appreciate, is a point about, um, about the obvious need that sort of defeats the mis and disinformation that can spread, which is, you know, when you see a disease ravaging your own community, when you see uh, and have to visit the the families of children who just died because they, they could not get the treatment that they needed of the disease your child could be vaccinated against, you're going to rush home and, and do everything you can to get that kid vaccinated. And, yeah. you know, when you talked about vaccines being a victim of their own success here in the United States, you know, COVID is sort of the perfect example of that. COVID is a disease that had a low enough mortality rate that there was plausible deniability that you would uh, die of it if you got it, right? One one percent mortality rate, but it had a high enough mortality rate that it ended up killing, you know, one point one plus million people in this country. It is extremely deadly by uh, by virtue of just how many people died of it. But also, one percent mortality is nothing to sneeze at. That's one in a hundred. That's that's a lot of mortality. But the thing about it is that that plausible deniability is is actually super dangerous, and because the pathology itself. Uh, and we talked about this in an earlier episode, because the pathology itself comprised of symptoms that people 
have had in the past, it, it's not the kind of thing that's so gruesome that everybody looks at it and says, oh my God, like I have to do something about this. Versus smallpox. We interviewed uh, Andrew Weirman just recently who wrote a book about um, called The Contagion of Liberty about smallpox. And smallpox is like extremely gruesome. And so when, when you saw it, you said, oh my God, I have to do everything I can to protect myself against that. Yeah. Which sort of led people past their skepticism and past the power of misinformation to just do the thing that they needed to do to protect themselves. And now smallpox is no more. But um, we forget that, you know, in this country, we have the luxury of having a debate, right? Which should never really be a debate because you can't really debate facts. But, you know, we have the luxury of having a ongoing public conversation about whether to vaccinate. Um, Whereas if you go to other communities, they probably slap upside the head and just say, you fools, you idiots, you have all of this access. And yet, and yet you're choosing not to take it. And Still, like grandparents are are dying um, still to this day, you know, whatever uh, federal officials want to say about a state of emergency. So um, tell us a little bit about the state of access. How many people go unvaccinated for lack of access in the the communities and the countries that you're serving? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because, as I said, you know, on the on the bright side, vaccines have saved millions of lives. But as we know, babies are born every day. We, we can't let up. And unfortunately, during the pandemic, healthcare workers and resources were diverted to, you know, masks and PPE and actually uh, vaccinating adults. So in 2020 alone, 23 million children missed out on their basic vaccines, 23 million. So that's from 2020. Now, we have more children that are born, as I said, every day, right? 2021, 2022. So we've got to catch up the ones that we missed during the height of the pandemic. And then we have all these new babies being born. So um, we're actually uh, going to be partnering the WHO, World Health Organization, during World Immunization Week. They're launching a campaign called The Big Catch-Up. And that is a real effort to illustrate how important it is to catch up children with their basic vaccines because mm. we have made such incredible progress over the last you know 25 years but with the pandemic rates have slipped back to where they were 30 years ago so we have the technology and the resources to get back there but it's going to take a lot of effort and so a lot of what we do at shot at life is we work to make sure that the US federal government, is properly funding these immunization programs, which again, I said, they're the best buy, right? They're the best investments you can make, um, you know, in global immunization. Because, you know, to your point about COVID, something we did learn is that diseases don't need a passport, right? They jump on an airplane and the next thing you know, they're here. Um, And we have had, we had a polio uh, case in New York state. We had a pretty big measles outbreak recently in Ohio. So the two sides of it are, of course, um, you know, we all need to continue to protect ourselves. But part of protecting ourselves is also making sure people around the world are getting protected because that's how this works, right? We're, we're in a global community. What was the impact uh, in, in numbers of the COVID pandemic in terms of global vaccinations for these other diseases? So, as I said, 23 million children missed out. Uh, on their basic vaccines. That was uh, part of the fallout from COVID. But Okay, so th- those 23 million are attributable to the vaccine. These are people who, like children who otherwise would have been vaccinated but for COVID? 
That's right. Wow. But for the pandemic, um, now some children uh, live in hard to reach areas. There, there's internally displaced and refugee children. And it's very hard um, to keep records and to reach these children. There are incredible efforts being made to make sure that those children also get protected. But the the effects of the pandemic, now I can't trace, you know, exact line, but we do know that there were 23 million children who missed out. And we know that healthcare systems were ravaged and majorly disrupted and, you know, ran out of resources because of the pandemic. Healthcare workers, you know, were ill themselves. They were um, trying to protect themselves with very little uh, protective equipment in a lot of these countries. So they were falling ill. So then clinics had to close. Uh, it really took a toll on healthcare systems, um, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, I was going to ask, where are the tolls the greatest? Um, you talked about sub-Saharan Africa. Um, where uh, there and then also where else in the world? So um, specifically, you know, I, I would say sub-Saharan Africa, as I said, I also think that places where there are people on the move. So, um, you know, we can talk about Syria. It's it's tragic what's happened there with the civil war. And now they've had an earthquake. That's probably an example of a place where it's just very hard um, to get health supplies uh, in. It's hard to find people. It's, you know, it, people are on the move, their camps. It's reaching those people is critically important, but as you can imagine, takes more resources than simply, you know, shipping shipping medications to one central clinic. These are, this is a, a real challenge uh, for our UN agencies to to make sure that those people are getting the health services they need. We'll be back with more with Martha Rabor after this break. America Dissected is brought to you by Lomi. Look, I love food. I love the earth. But me and the earth, we, we don't really love the trash that our food leaves over. I feel like I've found an appliance that understands this about me and the earth. And that's my Lomi. Nothing's worse than rotting food trash in your house. And this whole idea of like taking your food to another place that's going to rot, where there's going to be maggots and like doing this on purpose. Sorry, it's not my thing. Like I love the earth and I want to compost. It's just never been easy enough to do. And like, I hate to admit this about myself. I'm just not that guy. But now with Lomi, well, it is. Lomi allows me to turn my food scraps into dirt with the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns scraps into dirt in under four hours. There's no smell when it runs and it's really quiet. Thanks to Lomi, we have way less garbage per week, like half as much garbage. And that means it's not going to landfills and producing methane. We turn our waste into nutrient-rich dirt that we can feed to our plants. Look, Lomi makes it so that I feel great eating my food, and I feel great knowing that my plants are eating the trash that my food produces. Boom! Lomi's out here changing lives, not just mine, but the lives of my plant babies. If you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make cleanup after dinner that much easier, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash AD and use the promo code AD to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to L-O-M-I.com slash AD and use promo code AD at checkout. Food waste is gross. Let Lomi save you a cold trip out to the garbage can. This podcast is supported by Marguerite Casey Foundation. How can we radically improve our democracy, economy, and society? Marguerite Casey Foundation provides unrestricted support to movement leaders in academia whose research encourages us to imagine how we might answer these questions. Launched in 2020, the Freedom Scholar Awards are a commitment to scholarship that fuels freedom movements led by Black and Indigenous people, migrants and queer folks, poor people and people of color. Learn more about the Freedom Scholars and their powerful work at caseygrants.org. 
I want to ask you also just about mis- and disinformation. Obviously, we talked a little bit about the fact that, you know, a lot of these communities where you see the consequences of these diseases up front and regularly in the lost lives of people you love and care about, that you're a lot less likely to believe the mis- and disinformation. And yet, at the same time, internet still exists. And I would argue that yes. as as poor as internet literacy is here, um, internet literacy is often really quite poor um, in, in some of the communities that we're talking about. And on top of that, there is the added issue of centuries of um, colonialism and mistrust between the places where vaccines are coming from and the places that they're going. There was a you know highly uh, publicized case of a CIA-organized vaccination drive in Pakistan uh, in order to obtain C- DNA from a mark um, that then really, really hobbled vaccination efforts in that community. Uh, as 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 people boycotted vaccination drives that were completely legit, and that kind of meddling in the ways that our government and other governments in high income countries have systematically um, taken uh, the lives of people in these other countries less seriously um, has had an impact. And then there's also the, just the question of you know COVID vaccines and whether or not they were made available and when they were made available, and the way that um, people in lower middle income countries then look at um, what comes out of our pharmaceutical industry with a lot of skepticism and well-earned mistrust. I want to ask, you know, what is the impact of the consequences of that kind of behavior and the consequences of just the spread of mis- and disinformation um, of the the more mundane type on, you know, what you've been seeing on the ground? Yeah, well, you make an excellent point and that the internet is uh, reaches the whole world. Um, and a lot of misinformation that starts in this country has spread. You know, there there was a lot of vaccine misinformation in Senegal, in Nigeria. And it's interesting because for our campaign, we used to say we didn't really want to wade into domestic debates about vaccines because we're focused on making sure uh, children around the world are protected. But what we've come to realize is that with a vacuum of you know, fact-based messages about vaccines and real, you know, human stories about how they save lives, this misinformation has seeped in. And as people go to search when they're, you know, looking to, should I vaccinate my children or not, there's been so much misinformation out there that we're working really hard with other global health partners to make sure that good factual information is out there because you're right, the internet does, you know, reach around the world. And so certainly there are um, some communities in in um, where we work where there where there has misinformation. But I think we've learned a couple things. Uh, first of all, it's best to work with local leaders. So as you said, of course, there is some skepticism. If there's somebody you don't know who comes in, who knocks on your door and asks you to to vaccinate your child, but working with local leaders, whether they're faith leaders or just people respected in the community and making sure that they're equipped with the information to be able to ask what are often very legitimate questions from mothers, right? You don't Mm -hmm. wanna just inject anything into your child. So I think it's important to work with local trusted leaders and make sure um, that they have the information. Something else I think we learned uh, about COVID and not so much on the trust side, but just sort of on the equity side is we need to increase manufacturing in 
some of these countries. So all the vaccine manufacturing or the largest part of it was mostly Europe uh, and the U.S., some in South Africa, some some in other countries. They Probably the largest vaccine manufacturer is based in India. The Serum Institute of India is manufacturing millions of vaccines and doing an incredible jobs. But there's a real effort now to make sure that vaccines and, and other medications can be manufactured in countries. And it makes sense uh, from an economic point of view. It makes sense from sort of a trust point of view. So uh, I think you'll see a lot more of that. Yeah. You know, in, in so many ways, um, our country and, and European countries have given um, folks in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, parts of uh, Asia, so much to mistrust. And, um, and you know, when we, uh, in, in, in complete earnest, are trying to uh, invest in um, the upside of of health, that mistrust comes uh, in a way. And I think the more that we can, um, rather than thinking about we are the only uh, uh, country where we can manufacture these things safely, we come to appreciate that actually a lot of our a lot of our science expertise comes from those countries. Sure. Uh, and frankly, a lot of the, the 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 medications that we take comes from those countries. And that um, the more we can uh, let loose um, a lot of the recipe. Um, and allow for local manufacturing uh, and local leadership, the, the better off we are. And, um, you know, and I think that, that that has been, we've been slow to the uptake, but I'm, I'm glad to hear about a lot of those efforts. The, the other place where um, where this comes up is all the vaccines that are not researched or made because they are um, for diseases that people in high-income countries don't suffer, yes. right? So you think about um, a, a, a vaccine for, uh, malaria, how long it's taken um, for us to make any breakthroughs, and there have been some breakthroughs which are really exciting, or um, river blindness, right? Another disease for which uh, you could imagine in a safe and effective vaccine that literally uh, allows people to see, uh, protects their vision um, against a disease that uh, that just ravages that. And there is not a um, there is not a market base uh, in our market based healthcare system to research, develop, and bring to market these kinds of vaccines. And so we've been really slow on the uptake. And that itself is its own kind of um, neglect. What what gives you hope about the future? And then how do we take on um, the, that, the pernicious you know, neglect uh, by our, um, or by the world's, you know, and, and I want to just clarify this. Our pharmaceutical industries, right? You could imagine other countries creating pharmaceutical industries and researching and developing these things. What happens oftentimes because of consolidation is that our industry just buys them up. And then when we buy them up, we end up just focusing on the things that we make. It's kind of like, you know, Facebook just buys up all its possible competitors and then they all just become Facebook or, you know, Instagram by Meta, right? Right. And the same thing happens when it comes to um, pharmaceuticals. So what vaccines on the horizon give you uh, hope? And then also, how do we take on... um, the way that consolidation has sort of robbed us of research and development on diseases that affect a lot of folks um, who our system can't monetize? Great question. So first of all, I want to talk to you about a fabulous organization called Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, if you or listeners don't know about it. And Gavi was created, in fact, to fix that marketplace problem or one of the marketplace problems, which is that there were vaccines that were simply too expensive to, for um, 
you know, governments to be able, ministries of health be able to purchase. So Gavi works in what we call almost like a Costco bulk method where uh, Gavi will work on pulling together orders for millions of a vaccine, then going to a pharmaceutical company and saying, we're putting in such a high order, you know, instead of $4 a dose, you're going to sell it to us at a dollar a dose. It's just as an example. So I do think some of that marketplace uh, problem did get fixed with Gavi. And in fact, Gavi right now is working to make sure that the malaria vaccine got can get rolled out. They've started a pilot in three countries in Africa, and it's been very successful. And Gavi is comprised of people from around the world, uh, and they meet regularly with ministers of health. And they were told from the minister of health, this is the vaccine we all want the most. As you said, malaria is a terrible disease that takes many lives and many children's lives every year. So I'm very hopeful about the malaria vaccine. It's not perfect, but few vaccines are when they first hit market. And then as they prove that there's a market for this vaccine, we know that other uh, manufacturers will come in and they'll improve upon this model. And I think what's really exciting that came out of COVID is this whole mRNA technology. It gives me a lot of hope. Mm-hmm. There are vaccines that we didn't even, you know, we didn't even know we could vaccinate against certain disease, but I think mRNA is going to help um really leapfrog progress. So I think we're going to see a lot of new vaccines come to market. Um, Another vaccine that unfortunately um, rates went down during the pandemic, but that's really incredible is the HPV vaccine. You know, the Dr. Tedros, the head of WHO always says, we actually have a vaccine that can prevent cancer. Like, why wouldn't we all be doing everything we can get it out as much as possible. So HPV is also a really uh, exciting vaccine. I think we're going to see other vaccines against cancer. As I said, the malaria vaccine gives me a lot of hope. And I think um, it will become even more uh, effective as the as the technology evolves. So I, I feel like we have got the tools and technology. Um, and really, I think we're going to see a lot more um, progress and a lot of new vaccines coming on. So I feel optimistic if we can rally people uh, to care about this issue. Um, those of us, as you said, living in this country, you know, at, at our organization, Shot at Life, we provide a portal for people who care about this issue and want to do something. We actually make it really easy to reach out to your policymaker and say, please, you know, when this comes up for a vote, please make sure you fund these programs. And I just want to remind um, listeners that <laughs> overall foreign aid in the in the U.S. federal budget is less than one percent. So as people say, well, why should I fund this? And then we can't fund that. It is it's not even pennies, hundreds of pennies, thousands of pennies on the dollar uh, compared to the federal budget. And it's morally the right thing to do to allow uh, people around the world to protect themselves from disease as we can. But it also makes sense economically. We are also, it's our global health security. You know, as we, as I said, diseases don't need a passport. They do come into this country. So if we don't help provide that protection around the world, the diseases are going to come right back here. And as we know, cost our economy a lot of money and cause a lot of suffering. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that that perspective, and um, I want to get to the point on U.S. funding in a second. 
you know, the white whale of, uh, of vaccines is an HIV vaccine. Um, and there's been some question about whether or not mRNA can uh, offer that, that great leap forward. Now I'm mixing metaphors um, to, to help us catch <laughs> the white whale. I don't even know where I'm going here. But um, uh, what is your sense on that? And, um, and uh, do you feel like um, that kind of vaccine would fall prey to the same challenges that we've had in the past? Or do you feel like that given the, the state uh, of, of PEPFAR, um, the, the, the president's emergency plan for age relief signed under uh, uh, George Bush, um, do you feel like that that one might have a chance of really blanketing? Yeah, I, I can't comment too specifically on the HIV vaccine because I, I'm not, I haven't been following it and I'm not a scientist, but certainly um, if there were a vaccine made available that could protect people from that terrible virus, I think we would all be falling all over ourselves to make sure we did everything we could to get it to get it out and as as widely available as possible. And I, I think it's really exciting to think that there could be could be a vaccine to protect people. I want to talk a little bit now about uh, U.S. funding for uh, for global vaccines. You addressed the question on its head earlier, you know, why should we pay for this? And I, I want to ask you just why do you think that's increasingly a question now? I mean, it would make sense that so many of the folks who have who would be asking that question in the past would have used this metaphor of a shining city on a hill, right? And you would imagine that the shining city on a hill with all its prosperity would want to rain down its wealth on everyone else because that's what shining cities on hills do. And it seems like the same folks, right? And from the Reagan era um, who would say, yeah, this is definitely a good thing to do. Um, now question whether or not we should be invested in, in these kinds of things at all, whether it's because of vaccines being what we're sending, or it's whether or not we should be investing money in what a former president called asshole countries, which by the way is what he would have called the country that my parents came from. And um, I, I, I want to just ask you, like, what does it look like to advocate against that kind of a politics that says we should tuck in and not care about the lives of of folks in other countries. Because, you know, I think most of the people who listen to the podcast see this as self-evident. You don't have to make the case here. But what do we do when we have that conversation with folks who don't believe in a politics that says that we actually are, um, we are all in this together and that we should care about the well-being of our, you know, of, of, of kids that we'll never, ever meet. We have to, you know, even talk about these premises now. And how do we talk about them? Yeah, well, I, uh... I have to say, uh, about a month ago, we had our annual summit, our meeting, where we bring about 100 volunteers to D.C., and we march them up to Capitol Hill and meet with policymakers. And I can tell you, there were very few congressional offices that didn't say, yes, great, we'll do what we can to fund these programs. So the, I think the the people that we met with on the Hill, this is this is not a partisan issue global health. And, uh, you know, as you, I think you point out, PEPFAR, President's Malaria Initiative, you know, those were under George Bush. There, there's there been strong support from both sides of the aisle for global immunization overall on the Hill. Um, I think you're right. There are some individuals who tend to say, well, we need to take care of our own first. And I'm wondering if some of that might be coming from 
a lot of people suffered, uh, you know, financially from the pandemic. A lot of people lost family members, you know, had family members or themselves get very ill. So I'm I'm wondering if some of that sentiment may be more uh, sensitivity around, you know, my government isn't doing enough for me or for my community and our health. So now why should we, you know, reach out and help others? Shouldn't we be taking care of our own citizens first? I'm guessing from what I've, the things that I've read uh, of that opinion, that's where it's coming from. But I am pleased to say that on the Hill, we really get very little pushback um, for the funding. As I said, it is a also a incredibly small part of the budget. So I think also when people understand the the full pie realize this is a very small piece of it. You know, my cynical response to that is we offered you vaccines. Yes. You didn't take them. (laughs) But no, in all seriousness, the broader point you make is a really important one. It's a reminder of the fact that, you know, when we tolerate the level of inequity and despair in our own country, it poisons the well abroad. And in some respects, the point that these folks are making, which is we should take care of our own, forget first, last, whatever, that we should take care of our own is a really important point. And we mm-hmm. in this society have been tucking away or disinvesting in the kinds of services that uh, that do take care of our own. The, the thing that kills me is that the purveyors of this kind of politics would then turn around to a proposal like Medicare for All and say, oh, we can't do that. That's socialism. You're like, we're trying to take care of our own. Like, honestly, everybody in this country should have healthcare and also everybody abroad should have vaccines. Like, those, those two things are not mutually exclusive. We could actually do all of them. Right. And we probably would be better for it because, you know what, all those people are getting healthcare and not spending 15% of their take-home pay uh, to pay an insurance company. 15% of that is winding up in, in profits for that company. Maybe they'd be healthier on the back end and could produce more, right? Like the, the thing kind of works and I'm, I'm not trying to make just a utilitarian argument here, but like the utilitarian argument is there. The, the, yeah. the, the broader just tug at your heartstrings is probably the right thing to do argument is also there. And that should be the one that carries the day. It just, it just doesn't anymore. And that, that kind of kills me. And I really appreciate you doing the work every day um, to make that argument because it's an important one. And I'm glad that, you know, a lot of these folks who uh, in the glare of a camera uh, might start spouting off about 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 vaccines and and you know s whole countries at least in the have the good sense in 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 the privacy of their own offices to recognize that giving um, poor folks in uh, lower income countries vaccines is a sensible and moral thing to do. Um, so thank you for for doing that work and that advocacy. Really uh, grateful to have you on the show. Our guest today was Martha Bohr. She leads Shot at Life, an organization advocating for um, vaccines and vaccine equity abroad. Uh, Martha, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Pleasure talking to you. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. Breaking news. The Supreme Court has blocked restrictions on the abortion pill mifepristone. The Supreme Court put an end to all of the lower court insanity surrounding the abortion medication mifepristone. That's right. The Supreme Court issued an interim ruling with two justices dissenting, overturning two lower court rulings and preserving broad access to MIFI. The ruling overturns previous ones from both the district court extremist Matt Kaczmarek banning Mifepristone entirely, as well as a three-judge appeals court that had opposed Kaczmarek's full ruling but would have repealed 2016 rule changes allowing MIFI to be delivered by mail. And, well, this Supreme Court ruling 
returns us to a world before all of that ever happened. The ruling now heads back to the appeals court, which will hear further arguments next month. Once again, we'll keep you posted. The FDA and CDC have announced that Americans over 65 who haven't been boosted in the last four months, or those with compromised immune systems who haven't been boosted in the last two months, are now eligible for another round of bivalent boosters. This might sound like just another COVID vaccine update, and well, it is, but there are three things I want to highlight about this that are notable. First, this finally does away with the OG monovalent vaccine, and this sets up for a scenario that feels quite a bit like the flu shot, an annual updated vaccine that releases in the fall with a booster for high-risk folks later on. Second, the fact that the FDA and CDC are not recommending another dose for lower-risk folks reflects the fact that COVID cases, hospitalizations, and deaths are near an all-time low in the COVID era, and we should all be extremely happy and grateful about that. Third, this recommendation comes as the federal government is actively decommissioning its vaccination infrastructure. Toward that end, the administration is trying to backfill the public health emergency with a system of stopgap measures that they hope will address the gaps in coverage that could result as the emergency winds down. Of particular note here, the administration announced that it was investing an additional billion dollars into a free vaccine program for uninsured Americans modeled after an extremely effective program designed to provide free vaccines for kids. Nearly 30 million Americans could be eligible. Today, in things the pandemic did to America, birth rates. Between 2019 and 2020, America experienced the fastest drop in birth rates in its history, dropping rates faster than they'd fallen in the past half century. There was, of course, that mini baby bump after the first few months of lockdown, which has obvious reasons, but overall birth rates have stayed low. Here's what's interesting though. The states that experienced the biggest hit in birth rates were the states that were hit hardest and first by COVID. For example, New York, where COVID wreaked havoc in the early months, had one of the country's biggest drops in fertility, whereas states like Idaho actually experienced increases, suggesting that, well, in part, access to family planning services could have played a role. Why should we care about birth rates? Because America's population simply isn't growing fast enough to sustain so many of the structures our society depends on. Think about it. The way we've structured our economy requires persistent population growth to fuel economic growth, and it requires young people to pay into support programs like Medicare and Social Security that older people rely on. As our population ages and people live longer more generally, we could face the kind of population contraction that countries like Italy and Japan have faced, challenging our ability to care for our seniors. And this all exacerbates one of the biggest misses of the Build Back Better turned Inflation Reduction Act saga, and that's the failure to invest in long-term care. And without that, the challenge of caring for elders will fall on individuals and families, as it does today. That's it for now. On your way out, don't forget to rate and review. It really does go a long way. Also, if you love the show and want to rep us, I hope you'll drop by the Crooked Store for some America Dissected merch. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producers are Tara Terpstra and Emma Frank. Vasilis Fotopoulos mixers and masters the show. Production support from Ari Schwartz. Our theme song is by Takao Sizawa and Alex Uguera. Our executive producers are Leo Duran, Sarah Geismer, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. This show is for general information and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to provide specific healthcare or medical advice and should not be construed as providing healthcare or medical advice. Please consult your physician with any questions related to your own health. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the host and his guests and do not necessarily represent the view and opinion of Wayne County, Michigan or its Department of Health, Human and Veteran Services.